Well, I wonder if you were to draft a game plan for the future success of Christianity, what would that look like? What might that look like? I think it's a relevant question for the Judeo-Christian values that once undergirded education and medicine and law and politics and morality, they're quickly vanishing before our eyes, leaving many Christians sort of to ponder and scratch their head as they think about what the future holds. So I wonder, what would be your strategy? Well, I'll tell you some that I often hear, right? Take back the White House, right? For Christianity to flourish, we just, we need to get the right party in power, that's sometimes what I hear. Some will say we got to regain a foothold in the elite universities. You know, we get back in those elite universities and, and we train those students properly and then we can sort of regain that next generation of leaders. Or maybe the key lies with youth. And so we need better Sunday school programs and better sort of vacation Bible school outreach. But, you know, maybe the issue is pastors, people like me. You know, they're not properly equipped for tomorrow's challenges. So what we really need are we need better seminaries. We need better Christian publishing houses. Or maybe it's, you know, this sort of dated concept of the church. You know, we need to dump hymns and, and those long prayers and those even longer monologues behind heavy wooden pulpits by guys who would turn us into like wig-wearing Puritans. You know, we need to dump all of that. What we need is something, you know, something more conversational, something more casual. You know, we need to sort of meet in a warehouse, you know, a hipster on a stool sporting tattoos. You know, that's something that we need if we're going to reach the next generation. But, or maybe it's doctrine. You know, maybe it's our doctrine. The Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality, for example. You know, it's, it's so out of the mainstream, so out of touch with modern sensibilities. We need to be sort of more flexible, more welcoming, more open of diverse views if we're going to be relevant as Christians in the next century. All right, so what do you think? What do you think is the way to help ensure the future success of Christianity? If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to follow along in one of the Bibles provided there in the pew for you, page 1015, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, though separated by thousands of years, both of history and geography, one of these things, one of the things we've seen the last few weeks in pers- in First Peter is how the world inhabited by these first century Christians is not actually that different from our own. Right? In choosing to follow Christ, these Christians they now found themselves outside that cultural mainstream. And thus they were increasingly viewed as outcasts and as enemies. They were marginalized and mocked. They were sort of pressured to conform to sort of the cultural norms and mores of the time. And in chapter 1-1 through 2-10, and we ended in 2-10 last week, what we saw was that those, those sections were all about how they were to live together as exiles and aliens and strangers, who God had made them, those who are chosen and elect in him, and then how were they to live together as a body. So sort of 1-1 through 2-10 was all about their life together, sort of inside the walls of, of, uh, of their fellowship. And now as we get into chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, now we're going to shift. It's going to turn, and we're going to think about how to live outside the body, how to live in the world. That's the shift that happens in 2.11 and uh, through 4.11. And this transition happens actually right in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. 
So 2, 11, and 12 are sort of the hinge that turns us from the first part of the book to the second part of the book. So let me go ahead and read that. Chapter 2, beginning verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right? He's picking up the themes right there from 1-1, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So you get that call to holiness again in chapter 1. We see he's reiterating some of the things he's already called them to. And now he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So how are we to live sort of holy lives out there in the world? Well, that's what he gets to in verse 12, by keeping our conduct honorable. So he's saying though the world will malign you with their mouths, they cannot escape or they shouldn't be able to escape the compelling witness of your life. And that's the point really of 2.11 through 4.11. That Christians are to live such good lives that non-Christians may see those lives and be saved. That's what 2.11 to 4.11 are all about. And Peter's really just echoing what he himself would have heard from Jesus back there in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So what I want to do with our text this morning is it's not going to be especially original. I just want us to ask some questions as we work through our text. So I want to f- our outline will be sort of these questions we want to ask. And the first question is this. What's the proper posture of a persecuted church? That's our first question to think about. What's the proper posture of a persecuted church? Right, the church that Peter's addressing, the church that we often find ourselves in. In other words, what's to characterize these persecuted believers such that Christianity would, would thrive and flourish in the world, right? What's Peter's game plan for their own success? Well, let's read the rest of the passage to find out, picking up in 2.13, and we're going to read through 3.7. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now listen, there are enough minefields in this text that we could spend a lot of time. But uh, but I want us to, to think not just about sort of the proper posture of, uh, rather to first think about the proper posture of a persecuted church. Right, so just start there with that question. Amid growing hostility and persecution, what is the posture that Peter calls them to adopt? Right? Does Peter say, go reform the political structures? Does he say, take back the schools, redeem the city, arm yourself for revolution? Well, no. He doesn't say a single one of those things. Peter's answer actually shocks us. It surprises us. For there's one word, really one command, that dominates this section. And what is it? Well, I don't know if you heard it, but it's that word submit. Be subject to. Submit. Yes, submit. 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution or to earthly authorities. Then he repeats it again. 2.18. He says, servants, be subject to your master. And then he gets on to the next category of persons he's addressing. 3.1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then in 3.5, he's going to use the example of how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. How did they do that? They literally made themselves beautiful. How? By submitting to their own husbands. That that submit, be subject to, that's actually the dominant theme that marks out this section. Christians are to be those who recognize established authority and then graciously yield themselves in obedience to that authority. So if you're looking for a main idea sort of in this text, particularly in 2.13 through really 3.7, the main idea is this, and that is in a hostile world, Christians commend the gospel and reveal their confidence is in the Lord by submitting to authority. In a hostile world, Christians commend the gospel and reveal their confidence is in the Lord by submitting to authority. Now, this is not the message that we would expect Um, It's certainly not the game plan I think most of us would adopt for the success of the gospel, which is exactly why this is the message God intends us to hear. This is what we need to hear. So who are we to submit to? We've thought about the posture, but who are we to submit to? Well, first, right there in 2.13 to 17, Peter's clear. Christians are to submit to governing authorities. 
the first thing we see, who we to submit to, to governing authorities. Be subject to every human institution. And then he goes on to talk about the emperor and rulers and, and governors and the rest. And he's clearly referencing in these verses, he's referencing civil authority. To these authorities, Christians must submit. And if you think about Peter's exhortation here, it's a remarkable command. Because these were the same authorities that had conquered much of the Mediterranean world, including the sort of modern-day Turkey of where these readers are. The authorities that have conquered much of this world, how have they done so? They've conquered by the edge of a sword. That's how these authorities have conquered. These are the same authorities that had Jesus flogged and beaten and crucified. These are the same authorities that actually had Peter arrested in Acts 12 and thrown in prison. And so Peter's calling these Christians to submit really to the puppet government of a marauding and sort of despotic state. I mean, this was, this was, this state was no friend of Christianity. No friend of Christianity. And yet Peter still calls himself to submit to such authorities. And my Christian friends, this ought to soberly sort of instruct our own submission to this state. Because our nation is sort of born out of revolution, right? Revolution is in our DNA. We tend to be inherently suspicious of power and authority, which means really submission is not going to be part of our our national vocabulary. But I actually don't think that's unique. I mean, submission has really been a problem since the garden, when we distrusted God, distrusted his word, trusted ourselves that we knew better than God, we don't like to submit. But Peter challenges us, right, from the president to those, you know, irksome TSA workers. You know, I was just traveling this past week, and for whatever reason, they always stop you and always search you at all the wrong times. And I was, I was subject to that this past week. But to all those folks, right, to those high and low in authority, he says we're to submit. It's what Paul says in Titus 3.1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. What he says in Romans 13.1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. See, the Bible recognizes authority is a gift. When rightly exercised, authority actually brings tremendous blessing. And of course, the opposite of authority is anarchy and it's chaos. Every man doing right in his own eyes. Think of what happened, you know, in the past few years or during the Arab Spring. The aftermath that left its wake in parts of Syria and Libya and Egypt, right? Robing mobs, settling scores, vigilante justice. Peter recognizes that even corrupt and cruel governments, for all of their wretchedness, are often preferable to anarchy. Now that doesn't mean Christians are to passively sit by, sort of blithely observing injustices when we see them. No, we should work through all the means of redress that we have available to us. So where there are structures of government and systems of law and the rest in place, we should work within those systems to try to bring about justice. But once exhausted, unless the government is expressly calling us to disobey God's word, then Peter's saying we're called to submit. We're called to submit, which means we pay our taxes, even if we don't like the way all those tax dollars are being spent. It means we obey the law. 
it means we accept the rulings of an imperfect legal system as those who entrust themselves to the one who will finally judge justly. In 2.23, we vote as we have opportunity and we show proper respect to those who hold office even when we don't share their policies. Right, so when the world looks at the church, what it shouldn't first think are, it shouldn't think and have words that come to mind like belligerent or truculent or disrespectful. Those words shouldn't be the first words that come to mind when someone in the world thinks about how someone within the Christian church relates to authority. Rather, we ought to be those who are lovingly and peaceably clear in our positions especially in our disagreements, and yet happily submitting in every case, except we're being asked to directly violate God's word. All right, so submit to governing authorities. That's clear. He also says, secondly, who we to submit to, we're to, servants are to submit to their masters. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, one of the challenges we come across a text like this is there's not a perfect parallel between the master and servant relationship of the first century world and our world. It's not a parallel to sort of race-based slavery and our not-too-distant past. It's not really a parallel to that. I think the closest concept we have to something uh, like this is that concept of indentured servitude where you would sort of make yourself a servant um, to one in order to learn a skill or a trade and then they would give you room and board and, and maybe some small amount of wages and you'd work for them for a season and then you'd sort of have your freedom to go about and to practice the trade at some point. That's, that system is actually much closer to the system that Peter's addressing here in the first century. Okay, but what does this mean for us? I think the closest analogy for us is that is employment. It's employment. And it's saying we need to submit to our bosses. We're called to submit to our bosses, not merely when the boss is good and considerate, but also when the boss is harsh and cruel. You know, we don't get to exempt ourselves from obedience simply because he or she is sometimes mean or or sometimes unfair or angers us or frustrates us or whatever it might be. So I remember in when I graduated from college, I, I worked, uh, as many of you know, in investments and investment consulting for institutions. And I sort of worked with two different people. And one was very bright, but hated conflict. He, uh, he had a drinking problem. He was at the tail end of his career, what often meant a lot of long lunches. And he had this frustrating tendency to make up all kinds of stories in client meetings when he failed to deliver something he was promised to deliver to the client. And so I struggled to respect him. I struggled to work with him. And that was one guy I was called to work with. The other one was sort of his polar opposite. He was considerably younger. He was ambitious, highly competitive, the kind of guy that would sort of eat his sort of young in order to get ahead. And he was prone to fly off the hang- handle just to get really angry when things didn't go his way. And there was a day, I remember, when I was lied to um, by my sort of first boss about a raise that he had promised. And then he went back, oh, I never said anything about it. I had proof of it. But he, oh, I never said anything about it. I was lied to about that. And then I was called into the other guy's office, and he can proceeded to sort of berate me with every possible expletive you could imagine. And that was, you know, the way I started my day. And I remember going, you know, back to my office 
and uh, and I was seething inside about sort of the injustice of it all. And and I'll tell you what I did. I got back to that office and I moaned and I complained to sort of my fellow coworkers. I fed my bitterness in my own heart through gossip by talking poorly of them and about them. And then I threw a pity party for myself at the desk. You know, I effectively got nothing done the rest of the day in my own little pity party. That's largely how I spent my time. Now, what should I have done in a situation like that? What would Peter have called me to do? What would he call you to do? Well, I should have and and certainly could have talked to them. I could have respectfully shared my frustrations or disagreements. I could have done that. I could have done so honorably. I could have done so peaceably. And then I could have gone back to my desk. I could have shut my mouth, and I could have gotten my work done. I could have handled it like that. And if I was continually frustrated, of course, I could have looked for a different job. You see, we submit to our employers by getting up and by going to work when we really just want to call out sick. We submit to our employers by showing up on time, by getting our work done, especially the stuff we like least, by not feeding office gossip, by not talking about our employers behind their back, by giving them no less than what we promised and often much more. By being a responsible manager to others, we won't do any of these things perfectly. We may not even do all of them very well. But we should strive as those who are working unto the Lord and not unto men. Right, but there's another category of people who are called to submit. Notice in, in 3, 1 to 6, he says wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Ah, oh, Really? Like submissive, you know, aren't the days of leave it to beaver, aren't those days long gone? Well, you know, I confess, I read those words, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I read those words and, and there's a part of me that wants to sort of slur them and run over them as if they're not really there. And, and, you know, I'm obviously not a woman. This, this command isn't even given to me. All right, so why do I feel this way? My, why might you feel that way? Well, you know, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and I've noted to you that Santa Cruz can often make sort of Berkeley look like Mayberry. And Santa Cruz has been a home to many uh, prominent sort of feminist activists for years. So uh, there was the infamous Praying Mantis Brigade that came out of Santa Cruz. And if you just reflect on that image for a moment, Praying Mantis Brigade, you can see how that image does not foster Lots of cooperation and respect between the sexes. Right? In our equal rights culture, it was drilled into me, and I trust it was drilled into many of you, that to make any functional distinctions, functional distinctions on the basis of gender, right? that's the unpardonable sin. That's what you cannot do. Submission, it's argued, inevitably leads others into a state of inferiority and will render them second-class citizens. Submission entails oppressive male domination, right? The Bible thus becomes, to these folks, it becomes irredeemably patriarchal. You know, we just got to toss the thing aside. It cannot help us. And the assumption that lies behind a lot of this is that for two people to be equal, they have to be able to do the same things. That's the assumption that, that is across much of our country. For two people to be equal, they have to be able to do the same things, which is why you've got, for example, push for women to be on the front lines of combat. 
But here's the thing you've got to know. The scriptures just flat out reject that assumption. They reject that assumption. Nowhere in the Bible do authority structures, whether in the home or in society, nowhere do they entail the greater human value or essential superiority of those in charge or minimize the human value and dignity of those under their charge. Let me just say that one more time. Nowhere in the scriptures, whether in society or the home, does greater human value or essential superiority of those in charge or minimize the human value or imply inferiority of those under their charge. The Bible just rejects that outright. And how do I say that? Because Christians go right to the Trinity. They go right to the Trinity where Christ submits himself to his Father. Christ perfectly obeys the will of his Father. And yet at the same time, Jesus is no less God and no less worthy of worship. You've got distinction in roles, but you have under, under all that, you have fundamental equality and essence and being and dignity and worth. Everything we see in the scriptures that Jesus did was an attack on the pride that would make men and women want to prey on one another and would make them want to belittle each other. So will there, will there be domestic abuse, both physical and emotional in a fallen and sinful world? Will we find that? Tragically, we will find that. Will some male abusers even attempt to justify their abuse by grossly misapplying this idea of sort of biblical headship and submission, even more tragically, that can happen. Is domestic abuse or the misuse of God's word to justify it, is that ever legitimate in God's eyes? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does submission require women or men? If you watched or if you listened to NPR last week, you would have heard the sort of the, the largest sort of category of abuse in terms of percentage increase, it's, it's women to men, right? So it's, it's often a problem that goes one way, but it is increasingly a problem that goes both ways, right? Does submission require women or men to remain under such abuse? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus would explicitly remove self-exaltation from leadership and servility from submission, He was accompanied by women, taught women, encouraged them to learn, very atypical in the world of Peter's writers. They were even the first witnesses to the resurrection. But neither Peter nor Paul do anything to overturn those good gender distinctions and roles established in the created order, all the way back in Genesis 2. The redemptive thrust of the Bible is not aimed at abolishing headship and female submission. It's not aimed at abolishing them, but redeeming them, but redeeming them. And I think this text is particularly instructive because we might expect Peter to say to these women, we might expect him to say, Hey, listen, you, you women, you know, Christ, but your husbands who don't obey the word, which is just another way of saying they're not believers, your non-believing husbands Oh, they can't help you. They're not going to help you follow Christ. You're not called to follow them. You're not called to submit to them. You got to go out on your own. You got to, you got to sort of carve your own path. We might expect him to say that, but actually Peter doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. 
Now, are there limits to a wife's submission? Yes, there are, right? She's only to submit to her own husband, not to all men, right? To her own husband. And is there a time when a wife shouldn't submit to her husband? Absolutely. When that husband would uh, explicitly call her to disobey God's word, she's not to submit then. For submission doesn't make a husband absolute Lord over his wife. Right? A wife's submission is a thoughtful and a derivative submission, subject to and defined by her own submission to Christ. So submission doesn't turn women into doormats any more than it turns men into autocrats. That's what we have to know as we look at the scriptures. Right, The husband's authority is also, it's a derivative, it's a delegated authority under the lordship of Christ, whether or not that husband recognizes it. That's the only authority he possesses. And when a husband remembers this, he'll be less likely to see himself in a sort of domineering way over his wife. And I think that's why we get verse 7, where husbands are called to live with their wives in an understanding way. Or literally, they're called to live with their wives according to knowledge. And in verse 7, Peter's calling on believing husbands to a knowledge of their wives and to a knowledge of God's word. A knowledge that is going to compel them to live sacrificial, servant-minded leadership that would always keep the good of his wife in view and would regard her as a fellow heir in the grace of life. So... Just to be really clear, in, in, in texts like this, it should entirely blow up any notion that a husband can sit lazily on the couch and say, go get me the potato chips. Right? That, that fundamentally misunderstands what headship and authority and submission ought to look like. Right? Guys who exercise the submission card like a trump card in that way, they're just revealing they don't know the first thing but what the Bible has to say about how a man is to lead his wife. They don't know the first thing about it. And it begs the question if they even know what it means to be a Christian. They've so fundamentally misunderstood headship and authority if they use it in that way over matters of mere preference to get their own way. All right, I'm, I've gotten off topic a little bit. Okay. But here's what husbands are to do. They're to recognize in verse 7, as they live with their wives in an understanding way, that they do so, recognize the woman is the weaker vessel. And I think Peter's just, he's referencing a physical weakness, not a spiritual, not emotional weakness, a physical weakness. The points that the husband should protect and care for his wife. He's not to take advantage of anything, not to take advantage of any weaknesses he might perceive in her, but he's to use his strength for her God-given good. Right? That's what we see. But if we, if we just step back for a moment, we've got to wonder why this list? Why the authorities, civil authorities? Why servants to masters? Why wives to husbands, particularly non-believing husbands? You know, why not talk about children to parents? Or church members to their church leaders? Or the church to Christ or our submission to God? Things that the New Testament all call us to submit to. I mean, there are authority structures all about us. Why this list? Well, I don't think it's because the church was simply made up of servants and and women married to non-Christian husbands. I don't think that's the reason why. I think he highlighted these groups in particular because they, given their more vulnerable position in society, were most prone to abuse. I think that's why. I think in this way, the submission of servants and wives, it becomes an exemplary model of a vulnerable church 
undergoing suffering in a hostile world. So just wives in particular, just take note on this point. The way you submit to your husbands actually becomes an object lesson to us all. The way you submit becomes an object lesson to us all. Because as you submit to your husbands, you teach all of us about what it means to submit to the God-given authorities that we have to submit to in our own lives. You become our instructors. You become our teachers. As all of us strive, and sometimes with difficulty, to submit to those authorities that we all are called to submit to. All right, but it begs a third question. How are we to submit? Just a third question we want to ask of the text. How are we to submit? You know, if you have children, you know sometimes when you call them to obedience, you get what? Well, you get sort of that that stomp and the arms across the chest and they sort of march their way out and perhaps they'll obey you, perhaps they won't. But you know what that, you know what that's like. And sometimes, frankly, our submission looks somewhat similar. You know, internally we cross our arms across our checks and we sort of march our way out with a scowl on our face. But Peter tells us in 2.16 that we're to live as people who are free. Now, there's actually not a verb in verse 16. We, we read live there. It's actually supplied by our English translations. There's not a verb in the Greek. I think the most natural thing is to pick up the verb that's already been supplied, and that is we're actually to submit as people who are free. We're to submit as free people. See, Peter recognizes something we often tend to forget. For whether it's a frustrating government policy or whether or not it's burdensome work or demanding marriage, we often feel in our structures, we can feel trapped and we can feel enslaved, right? We have an expression for it. What do you say? Like, the man is keeping me down. Like, the man is keeping me down. We feel that. We know what we mean when someone says that to us. But Peter recognizes that in the most important sphere, in the most significant way, the sphere that determines our eternal destiny, Peter's saying, listen, you are free. You are free. Our sins have been paid. We are no longer slaves to ourselves. We're no longer slaves to every whim and passion, which means we don't submit out of some weakness or some wrong-headed notion of servility. No, we submit as those who are fundamentally free. The world talks about freedom as if freedom is the ability to do just what you want. It's to live without restraint, to live without responsibility. You know, it's that new car commercial. You see them all the time. The new car commercial, it's the sort of the suburban dad who ditches the wife and the kids at home and he jumps in the convertible and he gets out on the open road. He's free. You know, that's our notion of freedom. And submission, it seems, would be the very opposite of that. But the Bible would say to that, actually, world, you've got it all backwards. You've got it all backwards. Living without restraint, fulfilling every whim, feeding every passion, that kind of living is actually the very definition of slavery. It reflects that we're actually still in bondage to our sin and still in servitude to Satan. Whereas a Christian understands that genuine freedom is actually what liberates us to do what is good to say no to the flesh, to say yes to God. We've been freed, he says in 2.16, not right, not as a cover-up for evil, not as a cover-up for evil, not to indulge our every desire, but we've been freed to live as servants of God. That's how we've been freed. 
Now, in the pastoral prayer, I mentioned Reformation Day. And in honor of Reformation Day, it would only be fitting to have a quote from Martin Luther. And he nailed it. You got the pun. He nailed it when he said, A Christian, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Luther picks up the world that we live in. We submit how? Not as those who are in bondage, but as those who are truly free. And yet he's going to talk specifically to the ways in which wives are called to submit. You know, theirs is even a little bit more particular. He says in verse 3-4, they are to submit as those who adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, sometimes people read these verses and they get all caught up on the braided hair and the gold and the jewelry and the clothing. And I think that actually misses the point. Peter's not calling women to be dowdy or frumpy if that's what it means to be godly. This doesn't need to be a denim jumper convention. We don't need to head that way. I just realized we homeschool. I'm in a homeschooling community, so I'd probably be careful. But he's just begging the question, right? Where does your beauty come from? That's the question he's begging. Where does your beauty come from? An obsessive preoccupation with outward appearance reveals that the beauty you actually seek, it's fleeting. It's perishable. Peter's point is that we're to be captivated and we're to prize a beauty that God prizes, this gentle and quiet spirit. And that doesn't mean that women are merely to birth babies and keep their mouth shut. That's not what a gentle and quiet spirit means. No, women are instructed to learn. They're called to be educated. That's a calling women are to have from 1 Timothy 2. They ought to have thoughtful opinions. A strong woman is a blessing. I know that firsthand. I love my wife. A strong woman, she's a great blessing to me. So long as that strength isn't used to be excessively combative or to sort of seek to undermine her husband. It's not to be used that way. It's to be used as a blessing in the relationship. So sisters, just a word to you. You ought to be more concerned that you're washing your hearts with the word, not merely sort of washing your hair and washing your face. Washing your hearts with the word. Single sisters, strive for this kind of beauty more than the physical physical expression of beauty. I mean, think about it. Do you really want a guy whose only vision is sort of skin deep? Is that the guy that you're seeking to attract? As you think about how you spend your morning, where your time is given, are you giving your time in those mornings to pursue a gentle and quiet spirit by washing your heart with the word? Or are you actually seeking to attract someone that by the time you're 40, you'll have long lost him? Just a good question to think about. Single men, you ought to be pursuing women who exhibit this kind of beauty. Physical beauty is no substitute for godliness. And sadly, I can point to many a man gone through a midlife crisis who has learned that godliness alone, well, sorry, beauty alone will never make a happy marriage. It simply cannot do it. Physical beauty fades with time, whereas the gentle and quiet spirit, that will only increase with time. And trust that that's the beauty as a man, as a young man, trust that's the beauty that you need. Trust that God knows better than you, that he knows better than you, and that's the beauty you ought to seek.
But I think the last question we need to ask is why even are we to submit? We've been talking a lot about why even bother with submission. It's hard work. It regularly goes unnoticed, underappreciated. There is very little glory in submission. So why are we to submit? Well, Peter tells us, 2.13, we submit for the Lord's sake. Or 2.15, we submit ourselves because it's the will of God that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. In 3.1, he says that wives are to submit. Why? So that their unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So just a brief word. If you're a believing woman this morning and you're married to a non-Christian man, my stepmom lived with my dad, a very successful but often combative, cynical, proud, and could be a difficult man. She lived with him for about 20 years in marriage. Before and really until her quiet witness over the course of that 20 years, she became a believer really early in the marriage. After 20 years of living faithfully, of living as First Peter would call her to live, she watched as God used that witness to shatter my dad's very hard heart. And many years later, he became a believer. And that's the hope that we need to have as women as we live, sometimes with unbelieving spouses, that our words and our life can accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit far more than we can think or we could possibly imagine. But husbands, though you're not called to submit to your wives, in submission to God, in submission to God, you are in verse 3 7 called them to honor them as co heirs of the gift of life. Why? Why does he call them to submit? Really, as, and to honor them is really what he's doing. He's calling to honor them. They're to do that so that their prayers may not be hindered. Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers may not be hindered. And husbands, I just, you should let those words, if necessary, haunt you. To close your ear to your wife's needs is to ask God to close his ear to yours. But fundamentally, here's why we submit. Submission reflects a greater hope. The most important comment about the women of the past is not that they submitted or how well they submitted, but, but verse 5, they submitted as those who hoped in God. They submitted as the holy women who hoped in God. None of us submit to those in authority because those authorities are superior or even always worthy. We don't submit for those reasons. If you only submit to authority because it is worthy, you will never find authority you will submit to. You will just never find one. We submit because we are confident that God will reward those who put their trust and hope in him, which explains how we can submit even in suffering. The world sees submission as weakness, as bondage. There's no hope in submission, especially in submission while suffering. There is no hope in that, says the world. But we have to stop and recognize that the most glorious moment in the history of the world, the most glorious moment in the history of the world was guided by submission while suffering. 
That is what the cross is all about. Submission while suffering. And pulling from Isaiah 53 that Wes read from us earlier this morning, Peter writes in 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Which if you stop, that is a remarkable thing. The eternal Lord of the universe, when he was reviled and could have said so many things to his detractors, he did not say a word in response. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, to this suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We've got to see submission is at the very heart of the Christian's hope. If there is no submission, there is no cross. If there is no submission, there is no cross. If there is no submission, there is no sinless substitute. There is no suffering for sinners. If there is no submission, there is no salvation. Without submission, there is no hope. Submission does not single or signal defeat. But submission is how we, all of us, in our own spheres, reflect each and every day that Christ is our hope. That he one day will come back for his own. So if you've come this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you're probably going to find this message unusual. But actually Christ and Peter would call you to submission. And that first step of submission is to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. Because whether or not you like it, one day he will return. That's what we read in verse 212. He will come back on the day of visitation. He will return and he will return as judge over all the earth. And Christ alone is the one victorious over sin and death. He alone is the one that can pay the penalty of your own sins. And the submission that the Bible would call anyone outside of Christ to is to walk away from their sin and to flee toward Christ, to trust in him alone to save and to know newness of life in him. So that first act of submission for non-Christian is to leave the slavery you know, the, the things that you do that you follow each and every day, leave your slavery to sin, no true freedom in Christ. And yet the Christian, right, in your daily submission, God also is calling you to look to Christ. Because an inability to submit finally reflects a lack of trust in the Lord. That we fear others more than we fear Him. And it's hard to submit, especially if we're being laughed at or made fun of. But we're not called to despair or retaliate, but again, to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. He is, as our text says, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. There is no safer place to be than obeying his word under his care, faithfully heeding his voice. There is no safer place to be. Now, the waters we swim in each and every day, 
like increasingly becoming more hostile to Christianity. And the temptation, I think many of us feel, it's to fight. It's to try and reconquer lost ground. It's to retaliate in words or in actions if we feel we have been wronged. And as much as possible, we should work and pray to see that the freedoms that Christians have enjoyed for so many centuries in this country, those aren't eroded and they aren't removed. But we've got to know such promises... We're not promised those things will come. We're not promised such a day will come. And we need to know we don't need them. We actually don't need those freedoms. The early church was birthed in adversity, and she even thrived in great adversity. She did not have any help from the state, and yet... She not just survived, but she did thrive. So we can feel like our positioning in the world is weakening, that our future is getting more and more dim. But victory has not come, nor will it come, through legislation, through political action, through court rulings, through private Christian schools. That's not where our hope and our victory resides. Peter's saying our posture is to be one of submission, For our victory was secured by one who submitted, even in suffering, and in doing so, conquered sin and death and won for us an imperishable inheritance. Triumph through submission, even in suffering. That is the proper posture of a persecuted church. Living for the next world, submitting in this one. Christ left us an example that we might follow in his steps. So are you submitting to him today? Will you submit to him today? Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And we... We confess it can be hard to hear your word. It calls us at times to difficult things. We would not think submission is any game plan for success as Christianity meets the world. It's not what we would expect. But of course, neither was the cross. So God, we pray that we would hear your word and we would obey your word and we would delight to follow after your word even when it leads us down deep and difficult paths because we know that we live not finally for this one, but for the next. And you have our hope and our future secure.